So, ask a hundred people the question, what is a church? And many people will say, well, a church is a building, you know, a place right down there on First and Main. Others will say, a church is a group of people, a group of believers, a community of faith, we say, an organization with specific religious beliefs. And then others will chime in and say, sure, religious beliefs are part of it, but a church is really about a vision of moral excellence, beliefs and practices about how to live, about what's right and what's wrong. Individual churches might disagree on the particulars, but each one is a group gathered around a moral vision. So there you have it. The church is a building, a group, an organization of religious believers, committed to a moral vision. Seems pretty clear, and pretty close to what most people would say. You know, variations on one or more of these ideas. There's just one problem. When we actually pick up the question, what is a church, and take it with us into the library of the Bible, and when we take our cues from the Gospels, from what Jesus taught and how Jesus lived, well, it turns out that at its heart, a church is none of these things. Not a building, not a group, not a community of religious belief, and not a society of moral excellence. A church might have a building, mind you, and a group of people, sure, and beliefs and a moral vision, but that's not what the church is at its core. It's something else. What that something else is, is the subject of this five-part series. What is a church? The first clue Jesus gives us comes down to one word. Mercy. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. Let's start by clearing the ground, by clarifying what the church is not. First, a church is not a building. That's something most Christians would agree with, right? The point is not the building. Although, a lot of church resources are devoted to constructing and maintaining church buildings, so that's something to wrestle with. And what's more, the underlying idea that a church is a building can creep into our thinking and start to dominate how we understand the church as a place that you go and meet, you know, a place of gathering in, which, if we're not careful, can become the opposite of the church. Because, as we'll see, a church at its heart is above all a place of sending out. But we'll come back to that idea later in the series. In any case, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's striking that Jesus doesn't go around building churches or establishing churches or telling other people to build or establish churches. He did the vast majority of his ministry outside and on the move. The buildings didn't come until later, much later like hundreds of years later. For centuries, Christians typically met in houses or sometimes down in catacombs. 
Nor does Jesus go around with a clipboard, signing people up and founding new congregations. He doesn't seem particularly interested in forming groups, certainly not large ones. I mean, according to the Gospel writers, Jesus encounters thousands of people in the course of something like three years of ministry, thousands upon thousands, and he calls to be his disciples 14, maybe 15, 12 say yes and a couple of others decline, that's it. To those thousands that he meets, his typical sign-off isn't, come, follow me. It's, go, go in peace, or go and sin no more, or go and declare what God has done for you, or go, your faith has made you well. Now, a lot of Christians point to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the so-called Great Commission, where the risen Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. And that's all well and good, but it makes sense to interpret that instruction in the light of Jesus' three years of ministry up to that point, right? It would be strange if Jesus were to carry out his ministry in a particular way, in a particular pattern of action, and then, at the end, turn around and tell us to do something else entirely. That would be odd. And Jesus' pattern of action during his three years of ministry was to recruit a very small group of disciples, 12 and then later 70, who he sends out two by two to surrounding villages. And their mandate wasn't to recruit into their ranks to swell their numbers or invite people into their organization, but rather to go out and declare the good news of God's love and justice to everybody. And then to say, not join us, but go in peace. Your faith has made you well. The point wasn't the group. The point was the gospel to declare the gospel, and on that basis, to challenge all of us to re-examine the way we live and to make any necessary changes. The church is this work, this mission, not a membership. What then would it mean to make disciples of all nations? Well, in keeping with Matthew's emphasis that the gospel is not only for Jews but also for Gentiles, It may mean make disciples of all types. Don't play favorites. Make sure that Christian disciples, few as they may be, are a diverse group made up of people from every background, every culture, every nation. Not turn everybody into a Christian, but rather make disciples of all nations. All right, someone might say, that sounds good, but surely that inner circle, that small group of disciples, they were true believers, right? They were the community of belief. Well, we'll take a closer look at that idea in the next episode, but suffice it to say that if you were to read the Gospels for the first time, what jumps out about the disciples isn't so much their faith, but rather their lack of it. And as for moral excellence, well, not so much. 
As far as we can tell, Jesus doesn't recruit the disciples based on their moral distinction. They were just ordinary fishermen, a profession near the bottom of the social hierarchy in those days, and a tax collector or two for good measure, hardly moral exemplars. And their performance during those three years of ministry is, uh, checkered at best, culminating in what is arguably the greatest moral failure imaginable. Betraying and abandoning God, deserting God's child, their friend, their mentor and teacher in his desperate, harrowing hour of need. A society of moral excellence? No. The gospel writers go out of their way to portray the first disciples as a doubtful, fearful, prideful, baffled, and bumbling bunch. This theme is so common throughout the Gospels, in fact, that it becomes part of the point, as if to say, if the mission of the church can include the likes of these confused, mixed-up, mixed bags, well, maybe we're invited to the party, too. So, the essence of the church isn't a building or a group or a club of correct opinion, or a society of moral excellence. But then, what is it? The church is a mission, a form of action, an undertaking. The church may well use a building, or a group, or a set of opinions, or a moral vision in order to accomplish that mission, but it's the mission that defines it. Those other things are means, instruments, to achieve that larger end. Defining the essence of something by way of the instruments it uses is upside down. It's like saying the essence of a surgeon is a scalpel and a suture. No, the essence of a surgeon is her mission to save or improve lives by the practice of surgery. And to accomplish that mission, she uses a scalpel and suture. But that just sharpens the question, What is the mission that makes the church? The mission which all our architecture, our people power, our theologies, our moral visions should serve. That's the question for the next five episodes. And for today, let's start here. The mission is mercy. It's a theme Jesus comes back to again and again, over and over in those three years of teaching and healing, up on those hillsides and along those seashores, mercy. Here's a case in point. In the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, where the cross is waiting for him, he tells the disciples a parable, a kind of picturesque fable about a rich man who dresses in purple and fine linen and feasts every day and ignores a poor man at his gate who longs for the crumbs that might fall from that splendid table. The poor man's name, Jesus says, is Lazarus. Now, in all of Jesus' parables, Lazarus is the only ordinary character who's given a proper name. And so, this should catch our attention. The name Lazarus means, God has helped. In the context of this fable, the name underscores whose side God is on, and in particular, it underscores that the work of God 
is the work of helping people like Lazarus. In a word, the work of God, the mission of God, is mercy. The rich man, however, is anything but merciful, hoarding all he has for himself. And it's not that he doesn't know Lazarus. After his death, in the midst of his torment in Hades, the rich man calls on Abraham in heaven to send Lazarus down with some water to quench his thirst. The very person the rich man routinely refused to help, he now asks Abraham to dispatch to help him. Isn't that rich? Jesus is obviously criticizing the rich man character in the parable for not sharing resources, but the parable spends just as much time, arguably more time, exposing the rich man's contempt, his presumption, his entitlement. The call to mercy, then, is a call to share, and it's also a call to respect, to know one another by name, and to treat one another with dignity. The call to mercy is a call to neighborliness. When Abraham refuses the request, the rich man pleads with him to send Lazarus to the rich man's house to warn his siblings, to urge them not to make the same mistake, and rather to be more generous, more neighborly, more kind. But it's too late, Abraham says. There's no way to get the word out. And after all, the rich man's siblings already have Moses and the prophets to instruct them. The call to mercy is as ancient as the oldest stories in Scripture. No new messenger, even one resurrected from the dead, is necessary. Please note, far from establishing a new church or a new font of wisdom, Jesus is perfectly content to insist that Moses and the prophets have given us all we require. We only need to listen. Now, the irony here is that the fable itself accomplishes the very thing Abraham tells the rich man isn't possible. It delivers the message from beyond the grave. It counsels us, challenges us, commands us to share and respect and be the neighbors God created us to be. In that sense, the parable itself is an act of mercy, a call to become who we really are, generous and just. The mission of God is mercifully to share with our neighbors, particularly the most vulnerable, the likes of Lazarus, the one whose name means God has helped. The mission of God is mercifully to respect our neighbors and thereby to build up our neighborhoods. And the mission of God is to proclaim this divine mercy for all to hear, through the parables of Jesus, for example. And of course, this proclamation is also a challenge to become more merciful, to embody mercy in all we say and do. The mission of God is mercy, and that mission is the mission that makes the church.
Pope Francis talks about the church as a field hospital, a facility for care and healing and restoration, not up on the hill or downtown in the city, but on the battlefield or on location at the site of an earthquake or a major forest fire. It's a brilliant metaphor because it puts the church's mission in the foreground. And the makeshift tent, the portable cots, the the means and instruments of care in the background. In other words, the church isn't a thing. It's not a building or a group or a creed or a moral outlook. Rather, the church is what we become by the grace of God when we act with mercy. When our architecture and people power and beliefs and moral convictions are all put to use for the sake of this higher, deeper, more beautiful purpose, we become the church when we give, when we dignify one another, calling each other by name, when we live together as neighbors, when we move toward difficulty, not away from it, set up a field hospital and get to work. When we proclaim the truth in parables and sermons and songs and the shape of our lives, that the stakes are real. We can become who we are or we can become lost to ourselves. That the stakes here are real. And at the same time, that it's never too late to change. For God, above all, is a God of mercy. Strange New World is a SALT Project production written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. If you like what you hear, spread the word and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>